Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Tom Butler. And I'm Brendan Duffy. You're listening to the James Bond A to Z podcast. Join us on this journey of discovery across the world of the 007 movies as we take an encyclopedic look at cinema's greatest spy films. We'll learn about the people who made them in front of the camera and behind, from Ken Adam to Max Zorin, with the occasional detour down a few rabbit holes. And we'll sometimes be joined by guests with unique insight into the world of Bond. This podcast is in no way affiliated with the James Bond brand, E.ON, or the Fleming Estate. We do our best to make sure the information is accurate, but sometimes we do get it wrong. If you want to correct us on something or add some more detail, email us on podcast at jamesbondatz.co.uk. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to the James Bond A to Z podcast where we have reached the letters U and V. My name is Tom Butler and joining me as we explore the world of Bond that falls under the 21st and 22nd letters of the alphabet. It's the urbane and valiant Mr. Brendan Duffy. Ah, hello. Hello. Uh, we are now entering the final stretch of the James Bond A to Z podcast with just five shows left to go. How do you feel, Brendan? I have a sense of uh, longing for it to end. However, <laughs> I think I'll be I think I'll be sad when it's gone. Yes, I, I've done a bit of reflecting over Christmas, and uh, I feel like. Yeah, two years. We've had a good. We've had a good run. Yeah. By the way, we are celebrating our two-year anniversary this week, so we've had a good run. I'm looking forward to wrapping things up, finally getting to the letter Z. Um, but yep. we have got a lot of really important people to get through before we get there. And I've mentioned our two-year milestone. I just wanted to mention another milestone, um, which was a, uh, a mention that we got in Esquire um, as one of the po- one of the most exciting. Yes. Was it was the most exciting podcast of 2022? Was yeah. it? Yeah, of, of listens of ninety, uh, but so, but I mean to be mentioned is. Uh, I mean, there's millions of podcasts. There are so I think the, to be in the top ninety. There I'll are literally it. millions. Um, yeah. So uh, thank you very much, Esquire, and thank you to everyone who's listened over the last two years as well. It's been uh, it's been quite a journey, um, but there's still plenty of mileage left on this journey before we get to the letter Z, and it is a mixed bag of topics this week, Brendan. I think. Um, I would say so, yeah. yeah. Probably the most mixed we've had. <laughs> and the second half of the show will cover a lot of the characters that fall under the letters U and V. But before we get there, we're going to take a look at the legendary studio whose name appears in front of many of the Bond films, Brendan. Absolutely. It's iconic and it's U is for United Artists. I mean, I went down a bit of a rabbit hole with this one. <laughs> Just so you know, so brace yourself. If you're into movie studios, then uh, here we up. go. So United Artists Corporation, it's it's a movie studio. It's part of MGM, and it's currently it sits as like it's branded as distribution art house style. It's I'll get to that. I'll get to what it is now later on. But first, let me let me take you all the way back to February the fifth, nineteen nineteen. What? Yes. 104 years ago. Wow. (laughs) 
Charlie Chaplin, Mary Pickford, Douglas Fairbanks and D.W. Griffith, they came together to create their own film studio, which they called the United Artists Corporation. And I'm glad I found that out because I did want to know who are these artists that united together? And now we know. So obviously with those names who were huge at the time on hand, they became a success pretty quickly. Charlie Chaplin released The Gold Rush in 1925 under the banner of United Artists. They used the talents of Buster Keaton, Rudolph Valentino and Gloria Swanson, who massive uh, heavyweight Hollywood stars at the time. Mm. Chaplin directed some UA films and he acted in them. Uh, Mary Pickford, she produced a lot of them when she retired in the 30s. Um, Obviously, sound was becoming a big thing at that point in Hollywood. Um, So United Artists was able to capitalise on that. Uh, It gets to the 40s, though, and they start to struggle financially. And this is something that throughout their years, it's been a bit of toing and froing. They've sort of been used as a a bargaining chip along the way. And we've talked about this in previous episodes, haven't we? Yes, yeah. Just how they're sort of thrown in, discarded. And yeah, there's no sort of consistency. So yeah, 1951 and the production studio was sold. And UA actually became just a financing and distributing facility. And that was it, really. So by the mid-50s, they were releasing films. Um, So High Noon, Some Like It Hot, The Apartment, Magnificent Mm. Seven, West Side Story. So they're still releasing big, big films, distributing these. They went public in 1957 and were a subsidiary of the Transamerica Corporation. Right. um, Later later on. We we have talked about this in in a few. I think Harry Saltzman. Yeah, he gets on. So he's involved with UA. Yeah, their finances at this point up and down. But in the 70s, they, they do get some Academy Awards. So Midnight Cowboy, One Flew Over the Cooker's Nest, Rocky Ooh. and Annie Hall. And Rocky, they made films like that were made because they wanted to attract young talent. So we could do a whole podcast on Rocky, a whole podcast series on Rocky. Absolutely, and how that came yeah. about. But obviously Sylvester Stallone was a, just he wrote the script, didn't he? And they took a chance on him and, this is something that they've got a history of as we get to that. I will get to a Bond relevance, but just wait. (laughs) I was wondering. Hear me out. It's getting there. (laughs) In the 80s, uh, it was merged because MGM bought them. So it was MGM UA. Um, Right. And it's it's quite a tumultuous time during the 80s, but they did win Best best Picture for Rain Man in 1988. Uh, the 90s, it gets rocky again. No surprise. French bank, French bank Credit Lyonnais, they they acquired the corporation. They changed its name to MGM Inc. So they got rid of UA altogether. Right. Um, and then there was a period of reshuffling and organisation. Um, but then into the uh, noughties, they become a producer of indie films, I guess you could say. Uh, Bowling for Cum- Columbine, Hotel Aranda and Capote. So you see the sort of films they're making at that point. Yeah. 2006, any guesses who who uh who t- who enters the frame in 2006? Jim announced that somebody was joining and taking over. Is it Sony? No, it's Tom Cruise. Right. <laughs> okay. So Tom Tom Cruise and his production partner Paul the Wagner uh were going to resurrect United United Artists. So they they're released from a relationship with their previous contract. And yeah, they, they became part of this in a 30% stake in the studio. 
So it was approved by MGM and it meant that they had control over production and development. So um, Tom Cruise would produce uh, and also occasionally star in some of the films. Right. So there you go. That's, uh, that's 2006. We're still still not there yet. I've, I've skipped a lot of this, though. We'll, we'll, <laughs> we'll come up, up, right up to date. So 2018, it was re- revived as United Artists Digital Studios. And they re- relaunched it as a production and distribution company. And they were responsible for the US distribution of No Time to Die. There you go. There's your bond. Ah, okay. So obviously not globally, but in the US they were. So United Artists releasing, that's what it's known as now, was Mirror Releasing. And Mirror Releasing was a venture between MGM, Annapurna Pictures, and uh, MGM's Orion Pictures. So they, they established Mirror in December 2017, but it was re- rebranded on February the 5th, 2019. Why? Uh, for James Bond? No, 100 years of the United Artists founding. Right. You weren't paying attention, <laughs> were you? I was not. No, I was not. <laughs> They rebranded United Artists Releasing, which is where they're at now. Obviously, we've had that merger of Amazon uh, buying MGM. Yeah. So part of that, when that was finalised in March 2022, Mike Hopkins of Amazon said that they will continue to use the United Artists Releasing. And so they're going to carry on, continue with the with that method. Um, so they're still, they're still distributing films. But now for some Bond. Go on. If you're still with me. I'm still here. Um, I found this article. It was a 2005 article in Variety, um, written by David Picker. Okay. So David Picker was... The name um, Isabel, yeah. Yeah, he, he was at Uni- United Artists when Cubby and Harry Saltzman walked through the door. Right. And um, he said, in 1961, as a young production exec at UA, I read the Bond books and tried to acquire them for the company MCA. Uh, and he said that Ian Fleming's agent had told him they're not for sale. So he that's it. He thinks that's dead in the water. He said a year later, he was head of production and marketing at UA. And he was called by their London office. And then he was told that Harry Saltzman and Cubby Broccoli were flying to New York for a meeting about something important. So then a few days later, they walk in. Um, they walk into Crim's office. That's the CEO of UA. And they shook hands with him. And himself. And he said, after the usual pleasantries, I was leaning back in my chair when they announced they owned the rights to Bond. Harry had acquired a free option from Fleming and Cubby had become Harry's partner. Not wanting to take the chance that he himself might not get the rights when Harry's option ran out. So he said, my chair hit the floor and I said in no uncertain terms that we would make a deal and that the key to the film was spending enough money to maintain Fleming's tone in the sensuality, the style, the action, and the wit of the books. So I think we've covered this on probably Cubby, the Cubby episode. But they were in talks with a lot of studios, weren't they, at the time? Yeah, they got close with... Um, it's Columbia. Columbia. The one they got close, yeah. And yeah. Um, so they, they had had a chat uh, and came up with, I guess, like a light pencil deal with Columbia. So obviously going to UA, just chancing it really, see if they could get anything better. So they, they agreed on terms and they said, we made a deal with all the pictures and groups of two, cross-collateralised them and finalised all the, the contracts. It didn't take long. So I think we talked about how quick it did take once they met with UA. Yeah. That is clear from what David Picker's saying. It was quick. You know, when they got into the office, he wanted to get it 
you know, sealed because obviously he tried to get them a year before. So it's just fallen into his lap. But after that, he said, when we finished, Cubby said he had to make a phone call just to clear the decks. And he's like, clear what decks? He said, Columbia. They've been very good to me. I owe them a final call. They said no once, but I've got to give them a last shot. <laughs> so imagine that. You've just, just agreed a deal and you could be losing it to Columbia. But he said, don't worry. And he was like, I'll worry, I'll worry. I'll just make a quick call. So Cubby went and made the call. And in less than five minutes, and David Picker said it was a very long five minutes, yeah, as you I can bet. imagine. <laughs> he returned with a smile on his face and he said that we have a deal. So Columbia were at the time offering $400,000 to make the first Bond film. And so obviously their deal at the United Artists was to spend $1 million. On Dr. No, yeah. On Dr. No, yeah. Um, even though the final costs actually come to $1.4 million, he says. So yeah, a lot of overspend. But they got a lot for their money, you mm. have to say, thanks to Ken Adam especially. But um, they, they used an unknown to play Bond. That was part of the their, their figuring out so they could get a long-term deal. So yeah. an actor to do multi-picture. And he said, we got lucky, really. And and that's it. That's, that snowballed from there. So UA became heavily involved. But the franchise essentially outlasted UA as it was then because it doesn't really exist now. It's very much different in its form. Yeah. So they were the production. They they basically uh, pay pay the budget and um, d- distribute the film uh, while Eon make the movie for United yeah. Artists, and that lasts from Doctor No to the present day. Um, but how how many of the films do you know were released under the United Artists banner? Do you know? Oh no! Now you're testing me, aren't you? Well, it must be up to is it up to for your eyes only? Have the United Artists. Uh, signed before it and i think it's after that that they moved to the mgm logo right yeah that would make sense yeah um because that's when the mgm um well that's when they bought they acquired them yeah yeah that seems right to me um and then obviously from there um it well before that in fact you've got the deal where harry sells his rights to united artists doesn't he 1975 yeah which obviously then causes problems with the franchise being all over the place which is continued to this day right yeah yeah exactly yeah so it's a it's a big tangled web which we've talked about many many times and obviously you had the um the rights to casino royale that were with columbia yeah they were actually with columbia so they made casino royale in 1967 yeah i guess as they held those rights for for years yeah but then obviously bond falls into ownership of columbia further down the line and it's it's it really is a complete mess and i don't think there's another franchise that is like it no well i mean there are other franchises with messy rights to them i'm thinking terminator for example Uh, i know that's got a very complicated um right situation behind it um because it's got lots of different distributors and stuff but um, i mean in terms of uh, in terms of a 26 27 film series yeah there's no one like it is there but actually, when you look at the, the trace it right back, United Artists, they were there at Doctor No, and they are still sort of it in a way as part of MGM, still part of it. So it's quite a, yeah. Like, but it's just a tangled web, isn't it? It is. It is. But there you go. I can come out of the rabbit hole now. U is for Universal Exports. So Universal Exports is the um, it's sort of an in joke within the James Bond world. 
Uh, it's in the movie and book world, and it's a fictional import-export company that acts as a front or cover for the British Secret Services. So the company Universal Exports was created by Ian Fleming uh, in the books and appeared first in the second Bond book, Live and Let Die, in 1954. Agents in the field in that book call Universal Exports upon the phone and they deliver their intelligence in coded company reports. So it's like a field agent speaking to their boss and they give them these sort of back and forth um, and and then M M sort of decodes them into the intelligence that they're looking for. Uh, Universal Exports uh, in the books are based in a tall grey building overlooking Regent's Park Um, and the title Universal Exports is is actually an inside joke for Fleming himself because that was one of a number of covers that wartime agents used when requisitioning valuable items so they would Mm. sign stuff off to Universal Exports. Um, so the real secret service um, that Ian Fleming ba- ba- based his fictional one on was also housed at Broadway buildings opposite St. James's Park. And famously during the war, they had the name of Minimax Fire Extinguisher Company on the door. Um, so this sort of idea of having a company front up, um, for, the, for the secret service to use it, it is r- rooted in history. Um, and that um, that building there, that sign for Minimax was later changed to Government Communications Department. So very vague uh, for, for wartime secrecy. Um, so the, the name Universal Exports is also mentioned in the book Moonraker. Uh, but by the time it next appears in Honor Majesty's Secret Service, the book, the cover for Universal Exports has been blown. And then by The Man with the Golden Gun, the final Ian Fleming James Bond book, Universal Exports has been replaced by a company called Trans World Consortium. James Bond, Universal Exports. So, to the films, because that's what we're here to talk about. So, Universal Exports makes its film appearance, first film appearance, in Doctor No, as you see it in a, as a logo outside M's office as he goes into the briefing. And then when he later telephones Government House, when he gets to Jamaica, he introduces himself as James Bond, Universal Exports. In From Russia With Love, you've got when Bond is paged, he calls the office and says, come in, Univex, James Bond here, over. So Universal Exports, mm-hmm. Univex. Then in Honor Majesty's Secret Service, again, you get the Universal Exports logo on the exterior of MI6 office. And a fun little Easter egg for you. This is where you see Peter Hunt making his Hitchcock sort of cameo in a reflection in that sign. So uh, keep an eye out for that next time you watch it. Then in For Your Eyes Only, do you remember where it appears there? No. On the, on the helicopter that picks Bond yeah. up from the cemetery in the pre-title sequence. That's got the Universal Exports logo yeah. on it. Then in Octopussy, um, when, Bond meets Univer- uh, when Bond meets Penelope Smallbone, he says, welcome to Universal Exports. And then when he meets VJ later, he introduces himself as being from Universal Exports. Um this is quite uh, in depth. This <laughs> sort of ticking off box here, but uh, I'd rather rather go uh, in, into some detail because I think it's a fun little thing to look out for. Mm, um, yeah. On in, in Octopussy, you also see um, the name Universal Exports on the screen on the TV when Bond is looking at a camera in Q Branch. Uh, Living Daylights, you get the Universal Exports logo uh, again on the exterior of MI6's office, and then when Bond calls Station V, they answer the phone as Universal Exports. Um, in Licence to Kill, 
Bond introduces himself as a Universal Exports employee looking to buy a great white shark when he visits Milton Crest's warehouse. Then in the Brosnan era, uh, in The World Is Not Enough, Bond's ID card has a Universal Exports logo on it. Um, uh, in Die Another Day, he um, uses the code of Universal Exports when he arrives in Cuba looking for Delectado's cigars uh, in that lovely scene there. And then in Quantum of Solace, Bond has a Universal Exports business card with his ID for it um, uh, on, on there. So it's just a lovely little Easter egg that is woven through Bond that if you didn't know was there, you would never miss it. But when you know it's yeah. there and when you notice it, it's a lovely sort of um, sort of continuity that um, and another layer of sort of detail that you can enjoy uh, as a Bond fan. But like I said, if you don't know it's there, it doesn't really make any difference or not. No, I do enjoy enjoy it popping up, though. Yeah, it's nice. It's nice. I yeah. was racking my brains to, to think if there was any references to it in No Time to Die. Um, but... Um, I can't recall any, but if any listeners did spot any in No Time to Die, then please uh, please email the show um, and let us know. Yeah, it also reminds me of uh, the Art Vandalay in Seinfeld. <laughs> it's a very similar vein. It's just a made-up. What is his name? Who is he? Art Vandalay. <laughs> Art Vandalay? This is my boyfriend? That's your boyfriend. What does he do? He's an importer. Just imports, no exports? He's an importer-exporter, okay? Uh-huh. So, V is for Venice. Ooh. Uh, Venice is obviously a city in Italy made up uh, of canals. It's all built on water. Um, so Venice, now it, it features... It's, it's synonymous with Bond, isn't it? But it's, it only features three times. Is that right? Yeah, it's one of those... It feels like it's more, doesn't it? I was going to say, it feels like Venice is one of those Bond locations like the Bahamas um, yeah. or Jamaica, which which mm. features a lot. Um, but just three times, is it? it it's, it's just three. But in, in, in the books, so in Risico, Bond travels on the, Laguna, on the Laguna Express to Venice and stays at the Gritty Palace Hotel. And Risico was actually written after Ian Fleming visited Venice in 1958 for his 50th birthday. So obviously heavily influenced by that trip. But in terms of the films, any guesses that the first one is? First time we see Venice? It is in From Russia With Love. It is. And um, they don't actually, like the, the cast don't actually go there. Um, don't know if you've guessed, but the scene at the end, going through the canals where they're on the boat, isn't actually in Venice. Don't know if you could tell from the... Uh, the rear projection. The background, yeah. the rear projection, Yeah. <laughs> Um, so yeah, obviously that was just shots of Venice, but yeah, that's the first time we see it. Uh, and they throw the sex tape into the, into the canal. Yes. Of course, at the very end. And then the next, when's the next time we see a bit more iconic, this one, a bit more memorable. Moonraker. It is Moonraker. Yes. And, um, your favourite, uh, your favourite gadget. <laughs> we'll get to that. <laughs> um, I, f- I found an article. From 1978 in the NEA, it was on MI6 HQ. It's a good article, worth having a look at. Yeah. And they they talk about the um the the shoot. So it's, it was a three and a half week shoot, and it cost one million dollars. So we go back to United Artists paying just over a million dollars for Doctor No. They're paying a million dollars just to be in Venice. 
Wow. Unless, uh, you know, 16 years later. Um, and it's 10 minutes on screen, screen time. Wow. So it's um, it's crazy. But as we know, Moonraker was eye-wateringly expensive. Mm. Um, but they first got to Venice and it started raining. And, I mean, it's it's full of water anyway, isn't it? Yeah. I imagine what it's like when it's constant rain. Um, but when they, they, they finally... You know, it, it happened. The sun came out, and they could get to shooting. But, um, but I didn't know this. They were very security conscious, even back then, at, at the time. And obviously, getting ready for the scene for the the gondola. Um, <laughs> Give it its proper name: the gondola. <laughs> the gondola. The gondola going across St Mark's Square. They um, they were they were really sort of worried about that. You know. Um, but there, were, there was a group of students, and this article says, a group of students had suddenly appeared and stood firmly in front of the camera. They refused to budge. They said they would either be in the film or get paid to stay put. <laughs> Bro- Kirby Broccoli said, we were advised not to pay them, lest we started something we couldn't stop. And uh, he went on to say vaguely that they made an arrangement with the students who left peacefully. So uh, I assume he, they did get some money in the end <laughs> to move. Yeah, or, or he threatened them. Um, or threat, yeah. Or he made them some spaghetti. <laughs> Who knows? Um, and then on one of the... This article is a really good article, but it goes on to say that one, on one of the other shooting days, the producers and director had met... They, they had a meeting outside, and they were discussing where to shoot, how to shoot uh, next. And there are Italians walking by and just getting about their, their day. But then they were stopping to get involved in the conversation. And then after a while, there were a dozen people talking English, Italian, gesticulating and arguing about where to shoot. So the locals had got involved in a in a crew discussion. Um, so they had to create like a diversion tactic where they would create a fake shoot. And I think, was it from Russia We Love? In, was it Turkey where they had to do this? Yeah. They had to create a fake shoot. That's right. When it was at the tra- was at the train people. station. That's it. Yeah. yeah, because it was so overcrowded. So yeah. they had to do sim- similar in Venice. Absolutely crazy. So yeah, that, that's that's what they did to to get the the gondola shot to try and make St Mark's Square as empty as possible. Really, have you been to Venice? Yeah, I have. Yeah, and St Mark's Square is it, it, it's just so crowded, isn't Incredibly it? Incredibly crowded. Yeah. Yeah. So imagine trying to clear that to mm. get a, a gondola to go up. So the the gondola, when it comes out of the water, it's cables that pull it up, and you've got four or five people in the canal pushing the the gondola up. Um, and and Kobe Broccoli said, "No wonder I have ulcers watching frogmen heave the, and the cables stretch. Suppose one of these cables snap, we could have a lot of injuries." But thankfully, it didn't snap, and uh, it was it was all fine. And um, the actual the actual gondola. Roger Moore didn't have much control. And he said there were thousands of tourists who didn't know there was a film going on. I didn't have much control. So they eventually gave me a little klaxon to warn people. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, absolutely crazy. But, I mean, that that's an iconic scene, especially with the pigeon taking uh, a double <laughs> take. Um, but there's there's other scenes that are shot in Venice. It, it plays quite a big part. And there's obviously a gondola, a, a gondola chase as well. Yeah, yeah. In the canal. And there's that bit uh, with the um, the funeral boat, isn't there? The funeral canal. Um, yes, exactly. Uh, boat. Which is another nonsense. Yeah. <laughs> <sighs> Can 
can we can we stop talking about Moonraker, please? <laughs> um, but yeah, so heavily used there, and it, it's it is interesting that it's it feels like it's been in more Bonds because it's it really hasn't until 2006 mm. is the next appearance, Casino Royale, and and obviously this is like the final the final third features Venice quite a lot, doesn't it? Mm. So they arrive in Venice, uh, Vesper and Bond on a boat. And this is where Bond resigns and they're having a lovely time together. Just to, uh, having a bit of a tourist day, aren't they, in uh, in Venice. Until uh, obviously kicking she, back, yeah. Yeah, kicking back until Vesper sees uh, Adolf Gettler in the crowd. And obviously, uh, yeah, that means problems are afoot. So then we... We get to the end of the the, the 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 Venice scene where obviously she's betrayed Bond, and uh, the money's gone. And she goes to the uh, the building where it collapses, and she she drowns. Um, now obviously that that was not a real building. It was it was uh, we've done this. It was a miniature, wasn't it? Yeah, Chris Corbold um, special, wasn't Chris it? Chris Corbold, yeah, which is a great in the making of a great documentary about that how they did that. Yeah, definitely. But. Uh, so yeah, Venice trying to get the boat, the sailboat that they use, that Bond is on, and it was a, a problem because obviously it's a fifty-four foot yacht, and it needed to be demasted to fit under Venetian bridges. Wow! Because if you've been to Venice, the bridges are very low, and very obviously low, yeah. that's why why it's uh, gondolas that that is the main mode of transport through those tiny bridges. So it was actually the SV Spirit, which is the name of the boat that was. Uh, demasted was the first sailing boat boat to go up the Grand Canal in Venice for 300 years. Wow! So yeah, I mean that would be an, a a massive feat, and uh, I, I suppose they paid a lot of money to be able to do that as well. Sure, they did. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, so very interesting. Three appearances, and yet it feels very Bondian. Very much so. Yeah, very much yeah. so. I think it'd be nice to to have a return again at some point but um it is it's nice when it, end, it it falls at the end of the film so a, Ven- a venetian ending for casino royale and from russia with love yeah feels quite sort of um nicely neatly wrapped up doesn't it yeah i mean it's a very cinematic place isn't it i mean a lot of movies have used it in the past as yeah. well i'm thinking mm. don't look now and um uh indiana jones and the last crusade two sort yeah. of great examples of 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 films that also used it well but i think in the in the bond world i think i don't know a moonraker perhaps shows it off better but it's a better um scene scenes uh in casino royale i think for, for yeah venice. i agree um yeah and the upcoming poirot is also set in venice of course yes yeah um so yeah i mean there's still lots it's a, it's a stunning place and I, I recommend it to anyone if you can if you get the chance to go definitely go yeah while it's uh while it's not sunk as well yeah try not to go when there's a cruise ship in town though because the crowds are absolutely mental when there's cruise ships there yeah Um, i mean the crowds are bad at the best of times yeah uh, yeah coffee medium sweet two medium sweet Thanks for listening. We hope you're enjoying the James Bond A to Z podcast. Remember, if you want to support the show, we have a coffee page at ko-fi.com forward slash James Bond A to Z, where you can buy us a coffee for just £3 or for £3 a month. Thanks for listening. Back to the show. Is that all it does? 
Well, V is for vodka martini. Here we go. Here we go. It's the drink most associated with James Bond, of course, and was introduced in 1953's Casino Royale, uh, the book written by Ian Fleming, uh, where Bond orders a dry martini in a deep champagne goblet and then instructs the barman how to make it. And the uh, official recipe is three measures of Gordon's, one of vodka, half a measure of Kina Lillette. Shake it until it's ice cold, then add a large, thin slice of lemon peel, to which Felix Leiter replies, Goss, gosh, that's certainly a drink. And it really what? is. Do you like vodka martinis? I think it's absolutely disgusting. What is um, Kina Lillette? <laughs> well, I'll come on to that in a second, but it's basically an, it's an aperitif, an obscure aperitif flavoured um, uh, with a very bitter taste. Um, but yeah, well, I mean, we've had them together recently yeah. and um, when they're made well, they, they are palatable. But um, when they're not made well, God, blimey, it's not nice. It's very strong. But, the, but that's the problem, is it? They're very rarely made well. They're very, very rarely made well, yeah. So Bond uh, names the vodka martini that he drinks the Vespa, and that's after Vespa Lind, the character in the book. Um, but the drink itself, the Vespa, is named after a rum punch that Ian Fleming had drank at a party uh, in Jamaica. So the name v- the Vespa is actually a rum drink. Mm. And the recipe for the vodka martini is credited by Ian Fleming to his companion friend, Ivor Bryce, someone who's a very important part of the history of Bond, as you know, if you've listened to this podcast. Um, And the ingredients are all sort of fairly well known. Gordon's gin, obviously, vodka, the two vodka brands associated with Bond are Stolichnia and Smirnoff. Um, And then in more recent years, you've had, uh, what's the one that, Belvedere, that's it. That's the one that Daniel Craig dances to, Mm -hmm. isn't it? So they're the sort of the vodkas. Um, And then, as you mentioned, the Kina Lillette, um, which is this sort of obscure aperitif um and it's it's flavored with this taste of something called quin quinine um but this the drink keen lillette was actually phased out in 1986 and replaced by something called lillette blanc which is actually a sweeter version of keen lillette so it's not exactly like for like and if you want it to taste like ian fleming and uh, james bond drinks it you can add a dash of bitters to get to the original taste or you can substitute um keen lillette with a drink called cochi americano Interestingly, Bond, though, only ever orders one Vespa martini, one ever in the books. Um, And later in the books, he just orders regular vodka martinis and sometimes gin martinis as well. Um, And Mm. in total, according to statistics, Bond orders 19 vodka martinis in the Bond books written by Ian Fleming and 16 gin martinis. So they're not far between. But obviously the big debate around vodka martini is whether it should really be shaken and not stirred. Um, there's a lot of boring conversation online about this. Um, some would say that the shaken martini has a, a, a round, more rounded taste, but others say that the shaking it adds um, different molecules which bond with the oxygen, giving it a sharper taste. And also that by shaking it, you can it can make a cloudy drink instead of a clear drink. There's just so much debate around this itself. But personally, I prefer it shaken because it dilutes the drink and because it's a horrendously strong drink. That's my personal preference, but I'm, yeah. no, I'm I, no expert. I, I'd, I prefer it to just, if you, you can shake it or stir it and then just pour it down the sink. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the, the phrase itself, shaken and not stirred, uh, first appears in, in the Bond novel, Diamonds Are Forever, although Bond doesn't actually say it himself until the book, Dr. No. Um, and in the films, we see Bond being served a vodka martini for the very first time in Dr. No. 
uh, when Bond is on assignment in a Jama- in Jamaica and the, the steward brings him a drink, one medium dry vodka, vodka martini mixed like you said, sir, and not stirred. Save big on brunch for mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson natural boneless chicken breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. So later in in Dr. No, Dr. No himself presents Bond with a drink. He says a medium dry vodka martini lemon peel, shaken, not stirred. But Bond has still not said it in the movies. And so it's only in Goldfinger that we hear 007 saying it for the very first time. Do you know when it is? No. When he's on the plane and he wakes up after being tranquilized and the in-flight um, uh, lady says, can I do anything? Can I do something for you, Mr. Bond? And he says, just a drink, a martini, shaken, not stirred. Uh. So that's the first time we hear Bond say it. Famously, in You Only Live Twice, Dicko Henderson offers Bond a vodka martini, stirred, not shaken. Um, and Bond graciously accepts it. Um, and then... George Lazenby sadly never got to order the drink for himself, but when he meets uh, Draco for the first time, Draco gets him to get him a dry martini, adding that it should be shaken, not stirred. Now, here's a fun fact for you. Roger Moore never ordered a vodka martini in the James Bond films. Wow. They really succeeded with not being like Connery, didn't they? Yeah. So he never drove an Aston Martin, never ordered a vodka martini, but he does drink them several times in the film. So... In The Spy Who Loved Me, uh, Agent Triple X orders one for him. Um, in Moonraker, uh, Manuela makes him one. Um, and in Octopussy, um, uh, Maud Adams is Octopussy. She greets Bond by mixing the drink for him. But he never gets to say the phrase or, or gets to order it. But the vodka martini returned in strength with Timothy Dalton's Bond. And he orders a um, vodka martini uh, when him and Cara arrive in Austria. And he orders it shaken, not stirred. Um, and then in Licence to Kill, he doesn't order one directly himself, but Pam Bouvier orders one for him and then she drinks it down in one drink, um, one gulp, which is quite a quite a funny moment I seem to remember. Mm, yeah. um, and then sort of reflected later in No Time to Die as well. Um, then we go to the Brosnan era. Um, Bond orders one while he's in the casino talking to Xenia on a top. Um, Zukovsky... Um, refers to Bond as charming, sophisticated secret agent, shaken but not stirred. And then in Tomorrow Never Dies, Pyrus Carver ordered the drinks for him. Obviously, she knows that um, that's the drink that he, he likes to drink because they had a previous relationship for him. Um, and then uh, World is Not Enough. We also see Bond ordering a vodka martini at Zakowski's casino in the x-ray glasses scene. And then finally, in, in Die Another Day, when he's on the uh, plane and they're playing London's Calling, um, the air hostess, played by Roger Moore's daughter, Deborah, she serves him a vodka martini. Um, so, uh, yeah. Oh, and then he also orders one at Gustav Graves' Ice Palace and asks for plenty of ice if you can spare it, which is a great Brosnan gag, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Then the vodka martini gets a complete reinvention in 2006's Casino Royale um, when he orders... The martini um, obviously gives the recipe in the casino. Dry martini. Oui, monsieur. Wait. 
Three measures of Gordon's, one of vodka, half a measure of Kina Lily, shake it over rice, and then add a thin slice of lemon peel. Yes, sir. You know, I'll have one of those. So will I. Certainly. My friend, bring me one as well. Keep the fruit. He sort of, in, it seems like he invents it on the spot during his ga the card game, and then when he orders another one later, the barman asks him whether he likes it shaken or stirred, and Bond snaps, do I look like I give a damn? Later, Vesper asks Bond if he names the drink after her because of the bitter aftertaste, and he says uh, no, because it's because once you've tasted it, you won't drink anything else. Then we see Bond getting an, getting absolutely smashed on um, vodka martinis in Quantum of Solace, um, and it, where he has six of them on the plane. And then in Skyfall, you don't see him ordering one, but you see him shaking the martini before pouring it. Um, he tr Bond tries to order one Inspector in the bar. Ah, uh, yes. Um, but Q orders a, uh, what's it, prolytic enzyme shake or something instead, because they don't serve alcohol. And then we also see Bond and Madeleine Swan enjoying uh, dirty martinis on the train to Blofeld's lair. Um, and a dirty martini is basically made with an olive rather than a lemon peel and sometimes a dash of olive brine. And then, as I mentioned, No Time to Die, you see Bond ordering uh, the vodka martini, which he drinks with Paloma to uh, on a Felix Leiter. Paloma downs hers in one in a Pam Bouvier fashion. And then there's that great moment when all hell breaks loose, where Bond takes a serving tray, takes one off a serving tray, throws the serving tray, which hits a... Um, Hits the bad guy and then he downs the vodka martini as well. So again... Yeah, and he throw the glass and smash it. Yeah. Does he smash yeah. the glass? I can't remember. I feel like he just drinks it and smashes the glass. Yeah, maybe he Not does. Sure. Um, again, like Universal Exports, it's it's an Easter egg for fans to enjoy, right? It's mm. one of the key components of a Bond film. Um, it's something that people always will um, sort of uh, look for and, and enjoy when they see it. Um, but so it, it, according to uh, MI6 data... Um, you've got the most vodka martinis drunk by a Bond actor is Daniel Craig. Um, and he drinks, I think, at least 13 throughout his uh, tenure as Bond, followed by Pierce Brosnan, who has five, followed by Dalton and Connery, who have three, Lazenby, who has one, and Roger Moore, who has two. But I think, t I think, two, I think he might have more than two. Yeah, I think he actually has three. Anyway, that data seems to be a bit all over the place. But I think it's it's really coming to the fore in the Daniel Craig era for some reason. Well, because he had six. Because he just had loads one. of them all the time, yeah. Yeah. So that's, I mean, that wraps up the first section of this podcast. And we've got an addendum to whiz through, which we often do in these letter episodes, where we look at the characters that come under the letter, the letters that we're tackling um so a lot of these we'll have covered in the past on previous episodes so uh we'll just rattle through these but who have you got first um so quite aptly i've got valenka and um valenka is the the female is she she's not his wife she's not the chief's wife is she she's just, she's like just sort of his girlfriend piece, isn't she um but also his sort of guard because she looks out for him as well doesn't she yeah so but yeah, she she's one of the she's a henchman slash Bond girl, I think is is what I would put her as in Casino Royale and played by actor Ivana Milicevic. So yeah, uh, the, there's an iconic scene where we first see her where she's um, she's the girl that uh, gets out of the comes out of the water in a swimsuit. 
Like it's a really nice shot because you've got the it's in the Bahamas. You've got the sun coming through. Yes, that's how she's introduced. But she's she's at, uh, on hand to Lashif most of the way through the film, um, and very heavily in Casino Royale, and is is involved in a major plot point as well. It, it, you know, in, including when Bond gets poisoned. So it's Valenka who has to do it, and she puts the poison into Bond's martini. Mm. Which he drinks, and uh, that's where he almost dies. But obviously, he managed to save himself, and Valenka is then shocked because he returns and he goes on to play the game and and then win the game. Um, but she she said about being a Bond girl, she said it's very physically challenging. I love it. I'm really excited about this film. I was really shocked for a week or two after getting the part. What do you think of Valenka? She. Um... She's a character I always forget that's in Casino Royale, to be honest. <laughs> but there's that brutal moment where the the the, the warlord guy comes through and threatens. Is, is he threatening to chop off her hand or something? And I always feel a bit sorry yeah, for her in that her. moment. Yeah, yeah, me too. Yeah, yeah, and yet she still stays stays loyal to Lashifa, doesn't she? Yeah, yeah. Mm. Yes, through fear. But Ivana Milicevic herself, she was born in uh, Sarajevo. Um, to a Croatian family and then they later moved on to America Um, her film debut was in Enemy of the State but she's been in many TV shows she's been Friends, Chuck, Buffy the Vampire Slayer and Seinfeld as well Um, and I don't know if you're going to remember this off the top of your head but she plays the girlfriend of the tennis player that Seinfeld has to let win he has to make himself look rubbish at tennis. Yes, yeah. She plays. She plays the girlfriend. Right. Okay. Meant to be impressed. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, um, she's been in love actually as well. She's one of the American girls that you know Chris Marshall's character goes over to America. Oh God, yeah. Yeah, awful, cringeworthy uh, seeing that. But uh, yeah, she, she's in that. Someone else um, famous is in that one. Is it someone from Buffy? Is it Charisma Carpenter? Uh, I can't. They're, they're all pretty famous in their own right, actually, all, all the girls. Who's the one who plays Kim Bauer in 24? She's one of them, isn't she? Yes. I'm looking it up now. You carry on. So she's also in Vanilla Sky as well. And her younger brother is Tomo Milicevic, who was who was previously, he's been the lead guitarist of the band 30 Seconds to Mars. Mm. So With Jared Leto. There you go. <laughs> Didn't think we'd get to Jared Leto today, but here we are. <laughs> Alicia Cuthbert it's on my head I've just plucked it out of my brain yes (laughs) yes yes Um, I'll remember there's your love actually knowledge yeah I'll remember (laughs) the other one eventually it's not Charisma Carpenter it's the other one Uh, oh January Jones it's January Jones isn't it yes yes so V uh, is for Vargas now, Vargas, of course, is the henchman who works for Largo in Thunderball. Famously, Largo says about Vargas. Of course, Vargas does not drink, does not smoke, does not make love. What do you do, Vargas? Uh, but, so what does he do? Well, he throws Quist into a shark pool. He tries to call Bond on board the Disco Volante. He kidnaps Paula Kaplan. He tries to apprehend Bond during the Junkanoo sequence. And finally, when he's killed by Bond, who appro- when he's approaching him and Domino on the beach, he's shot with a spear gun and Bond delivers the quip. I think he got the point. So there we have it. Uh, and he uh, appears in the Thunderball book, uh, but very different sort of character. Apparently described as a short, thick man with a very direct gaze. 
and his distinguishing feature is a stoical professionalism and rigid self-control which is sort of where that what do, what do you do Vargas thing comes from mm. and Vargas was played by an actor called Roy James Philip Locke known as Philip Locke and he was born in 1928 died in 2004 and was known for playing sort of intense nervy villains on screen but he was trained at RADA and uh, had a very successful stage career uh, in the 1950s he was a member of the royal court and took on many many Shakespearean roles uh, he had a very very busy stage career and he actually uh, won a, a lot a Tony award for playing Professor Moriarty um, in a Sherlock's home Sherlock Holmes play in 1974 but his film first film appearance was in a, a movie called Cloak Without Dagger um, and beyond Thunderball, he appeared, he worked with Ronnie Barker in the film version of uh, Porridge. He appeared in the Roger Moore film Escape to Athena. Um, and some of his TV credits include um, The Avengers, Inspector Morse, Poirot, Bergerac, Minder, um, Doctor Who. So he sort of, you know, did the rounds mm. on those sorts of things. But according to his Telegraph obituary, uh, Philip Locke was a very private man who spent much of his time in his pyjamas. Um, and he <laughs> died, survived by his companion, Michael Ivan. So it seems like a, 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 possibly a, a closeted gay man as well. But um, yeah, that's Philip Locke, uh, Vargas in Thunderball. What do you think of Vargas? Uh, do you remember bit, him? No, I no, apart from when he gets shot by a harpoon. Yeah. Um, I think he's a good, he's an interesting uh, screen presence, I think. Unlike the next person. <laughs> oh, v is for Verity. So Verity is um, the fencing instructor to Miranda Frost and Gustave Graves at the Blades Club in, two, uh, in Dine of the Day. And she was played by Madonna. Couldn't find anything about, out about Madonna, don't know. Who that is? I don't know what happened to her? Yeah, yeah. Um, and Madonna obviously sang the title song as well. Um, so it, it's a it's an odd little scene, and the scene itself it was shot at the Reform Club in Pall Mall, and um, yeah, the, uh, we talked about this in the I think it might have been the Dine of the Day that would make sense or Brosnan, but about where they're all waiting the day she was to shoot that scene they were all waiting yeah. they didn't think she was going to turn up and there she was and they couldn't quite believe she was there um, and obviously for um, Rosamund Pike who had just come out of drama school this would be so surreal um, being involved with, with Madonna but um, yeah the outfit that she's wearing is is designed by Donatella Versace wonder if anyone else's is just hers at the club yeah um, yeah, so she, she actually spoke about the song's meaning. I don't think we covered this because I think we brushed over it as quickly as we possibly could on the Dine of the Day episode. But she said, the song I wrote for the Bond film was about destroying the ego and it's juxtaposing the metaphor of the fight against good and bad and it's set inside the whole universe of Bond. James Bond is in prison and he gets out of prison. Like all Bond films, somebody's chasing him or he's chasing somebody and it's always a fight against good and evil. I wanted to take it to another level it's kind of a metaphor of I'm fighting myself. <sighs> okay. Yeah, okay. Fine. 
but El- Elton John said, it's the worst Bond tune ever. It hasn't got a tune. James Bond themes are usually very camp, and this one's different. They should have gone with someone like Lulu and Shirley Bassey, or maybe I'm in that league. Uh, and that led to Madonna not going to the Golden Globes that year when he said that because uh, she was meant to sit next to Elton John, but she didn't want to see him because of that remark. Well, it seems like sour grapes from uh, Elton John, to be honest. It, it does, but also he's right, isn't he? <laughs> so, uh, yeah. So there you go. What do you think of Verity? I mean, yeah, you could take her out of the film. It wouldn't make any difference whatsoever, would it? No. Um, and the dialogue's so weird. It's just cringy. It's very wooden, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Um, I seem to remember at the time that we say that she did a deal for a million dollars to do the theme song and mm. the, the, the the cameo. So uh, yeah, money well uh, money well earned. And and the music video, by the way, just cause we did cover this before, but it came up again while I was researching. The music video for Die Another Day cost six million. Yeah, <laughs> insane. It's insane. Feast your eyes on the finest blade in the club. <laughs> Gustav Graves. Mm-mm. His publicist, Miranda Frost. My protege. Gorgeous, isn't she? She took the gold at Sydney. By default, if I remember. Default? The one who beat her OD'd on steroids. Miranda deserved that gold. Right. V is for Vens. Now, Vens uh, is a very, very minor KGB agent. But memorable. but memorable, who working for Golgol, who very briefly appears in A View to a Kill. Now, the reason we mentioned Venz is because he was played by 1980s action legend Dolph Lundgren. And it was the Swedish actor's first screen appearance, which he got basically because he was dating Grace Jones at the time. He was her bodyguard. She obviously played Mayday in the 1985 Bond film. So... A few things about Lundgren, despite his appearance as this sort of huge muscle-bound action star, he's actually incredibly smart. Did you know this? He graduated with a degree in chemical engineering from the Royal Institute of Technology in Stockholm uh, in the 1970s. He also became a karate expert, uh, getting to the rank of second Dan Black Belt in 1978. And then in 1982, he got a master's degree in chemical engineering from the University of Sydney in Australia. He then got a Fulbright scholarship to MIT in 1983. But uh, while he was preparing to move to Boston, uh, he was spotted working as a bouncer in in Sydney, Australia, uh, and was hired by Grace Jones as a bodyguard. Um, and so while he was Grace Jones's bodyguard uh, living in New York, uh, he then studied, began to study drama at the Warren Robertson Theatre Workshop. Um, and that basically opened up his eyes to a whole new world. And he apparently hung out with Andy Warhol, Keith Haring, Iman, uh, went to Studio 54. Um, and some of his contemporaries uh, at, uh, at the, at the Theatre Workshop were Andy McDowell and Tom Hulse. Um, but talking about getting the role in A View to a Kill, John Glenn said Dolph accompanied Grace Jones to Chantilly together with her mother and son. He asked me if there was a small part. He asked me if there was a small part in the movie for him. He did a short test for me where he impressed me with his gunplay. So I cast him as a Russian heavy. On the few occasions that I have met him subsequently, he credits me with launching his film career. And Dolph Lundgren shot just his scenes uh, in Paris in just one day. But that same year, being in A View to a Kill, he landed the role of Ivan Drago in Rocky Four. Yeah, absolutely we- iconic. 
yeah, which I would say is one of the one of his one of the most famous movie roles um, you could get really. Yeah. Uh, so it's incredible he's gone from a tiny role in View to Kill to one of the biggest movie roles in the world. So this is the film basically that launched his career. Um, and he went on famously to star, you know, in He-Man, uh, as He-Man in Master of the Universe. He was in Red Scorpion. He played the Punisher in the early Punisher movies. Uh, Universal Soldier, which he did with Jean-Claude Van Damme. And then obviously more recently, he was in the Expendables films. Um, and then obviously Creed Two, where he played Ivan Drago again. Mm. Um, so uh, he's really a minor footnote in the world of Bond, but one of those people that when you spot him, you go, oh, yeah, look, it's Dolph yeah. Lundgren. Yeah. So uh, V is for VJ, um, and VJ is a uh, works with British Secret Service and he's Bond's contact in India when they're investigating Kamal Khan in Octopussy. Um, and he's played by professional tennis player Vijay Armitage. Why did, oh, we talked about this recently, didn't we? Octopussy, which we've done. We yeah. we did it at length in Octopussy, yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah, he, he's working at the Indian station for the British service and um, Bond meets him and he's playing a flute to a, to a snake. Oh God. Uh, and he's playing the James Bond theme, which uh, always really doesn't sit right with me. Just a bit weird, isn't it? Because it's, it's meta. Right. It's too meta. It's too meta, yeah. Yeah. And obviously he doesn't like snakes. So it's a bit weird that he set all that up, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah. Uh, so then he takes Bond to Station I, Sad Ruddin. And um, yeah, I mean, VJ is, is is on hand at most things while while they're there. And the vehicle... The rickshaw that they drive, it's VJ that drives it. And that's obviously been adapted by Q to weave through the streets. And then VJ, he obviously uses a tennis racket at some point. Well, he had to, didn't he? He had to, yeah. So, yeah, played by VJ Armitage, yeah. And um, he was born in 1953. He's currently, he's a commentator for tennis. But he's a retired, he actually was a tennis player, he's retired, um, he's from Madras. And he was honoured last year in 2022 for his contributions to tennis by the International Tennis Hall of Fame in London. You name another appearance, the film appearance from him? I bet you can. No. You can't? Uh, can I? Ah, Star Trek Four: The Voyage Home, 1986. Ah. He is an unnamed starship captain. <laughs> so... <laughs> You need to you need to dig that out and rewatch that. I do, you do. <laughs> and also, for a while, he served as a United Nations messenger of peace. Served, I like the way you. Uh... And yeah. um, throughout, from that, he set up the VJ Arbitrage Foundation, um, which their their aim is to make better lives for underprivileged people in India. Um, but yeah, that's VJ. What do you think of VJ? Uh, well, I mean, you know my feelings about Octopussy. I think it's a silly mm. film, but um, yeah. uh, I don't mind. I mean, he's a fun sort of addition. I always feel, so- again, someone else I feel sorry for when he gets offed um, because uh, it's quite an undignified ending for him on that side of the river, isn't it? It's, yeah. Um, it's yeah. quite sad. Is it the the, the, the chain, the, the, the jigsaw thing that kills him, I think, isn't it? Yeah. Um, jigsaw? Yo-yo, not jigsaw. Jigsaw. I don't know what I'm thinking of. <laughs> Seesaw? Not much trying to think of. Yeah, anyway, he gets killed with the yo-yo. Yeah. Not very, it's not very <laughs> dignified. 
Right, Villiers. So uh, this is a one I'll just rattle off very quickly. But Villiers is M's assistant in 26, 2006's Casino Royale. And he's played by Tobias Menzies. He's sort of um, a, a, a surrogate replacement for Bill Tanner and or Moneypenny. Neither of which, are, of course, are in Casino Royale. Villiers, not to be com confused with James Villiers, who played Bill Tanner in For Your Eyes Only. Or Amherst Villiers. The, um, the the car company that um, supercharges Bond's car in the Casino Royale novel, but possibly named after either one or the other. But Tobias Menzies, he, he again went to RADA, something we probably say on every episode. Yeah. Um, done, he's done tons of TV and movies, um, but best known for playing Prince Philip in series three and four of The Crown, uh, for which he won a uh, Emmy um, as Outstanding Supporting Actor. Um, he also received Golden Globes and British Academy Television Awards. I mean, yeah, outstanding gritted teeth throughout yes. the whole of that. It's 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 fantastic. It's a very, uh, it's a very uh, sort of performance. Isn't it? The thing is, he really he really did embody Prince Philip. It was a great it was a a great uh, not an impression, yeah. but you know, yeah. I thought he was better than Matt Smith. Anyway, um, Tobias Menzies also was um, in Game of Thrones as um, a useless character. I seem to remember. <laughs> um, uh, but he also was nominated for a Golden Globe for Outlander. But that is Villiers' uh, character that is only very briefly in Casino Royale. Who have you got? Uh, v is for Vlad. Uh, Vladimir Popov, um, who is a Russian scientist and he's an inventor who has been um, employed by Gustav Graves to come up with different ideas and uh, inventions. <laughs> Possibly. Played, played Who knows? By, <laughs> played by uh, Mikhail Gorovoy. And um, so Vlad created the created Icarus, the space program. He designed the um, the ice drag race car. Yeah. The the battle suit, the Power Ranger battle suit at yeah. the end <laughs> that controls Icarus. Um, yeah. But, you know, those creations weren't enough because uh, Graves is... He's he's really horrible to uh, to Vlad, isn't he? Yeah, he talks to him like talks down to him the whole the whole way. I mean, Graves is obviously an awful man, but he's he would be, wouldn't be anything without what what Vlad's done. Vlad's an absolute genius, and yeah. he just stays loyal. Imagine if you put that use to to good, oh, rather than being working for the bad guys. But there we are, and then uh, he gets an undignified end, doesn't he? He gets sucked out of a plane. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, Mikhail Gorvoy uh, is a Russian actor born in 1965. Um, he was also um, in The Bridge of Spies playing a character called Ivan Shishkin and uh, also played a character called Livertin in The Hitman's Bodyguard in 2017. Um, Vlad is very much in the mould of a classic Bond sort of sidekick scientist character isn't he yeah I, I in my mind i always tie him up with that guy is it carl mortner in um view to a kill zorin's mm, yeah. sort of scientist yep. uh yeah same mold yeah same mold isn't it yeah yep. and in any other film any other bond film um i think vlad would stand out as being quite a zany character but in this film he's just like everyone else yeah everyone's absolutely <laughs> yeah. bonkers in this movie exactly. but i think which I, th I think is a bit of a shame, really, because I do really like Vlad as a character, but he's just lost in the mix, isn't he? He is, yeah. So V is for Volpe, Fiona Volpe. Now, we covered Thunderball very, very recently, so I won't, uh, won't dwell too long on Fiona Volpe, but she's the female femme fatale in that movie, played by Luciana 
Paluzzi. She's not in the novel, um, so she's made up exclusively for the movie. And as we know, Volpe seduces Major Derval um, and is all tied up with that surgical enhancement plot at the beginning. And then she later is sent to kill Count Lippy when he leaves Shrublands and she's in that great chase with the motorbike and the DB5. And then she later encounters Bond in the Bahamas, giving him a lift in her car. And there's a lovely exchange between the two of them. And then another great exchange between Bond and Volpe later after he seduces her and then she double crosses him. Um, yeah. later at the junk canoe and then obviously she has that great well not great but memorable ending where bond maneuvers her into a specter agent's gunshot and she gets killed and he lays her down and says do mind if my friend sits this out she's just dead fact, an incredible line um so paluzzi luciana paluzzi is an italian actor she was born in 1937 and she studied naval engineering um in milan but then went on to make uh, her film debut, uh, make many, lots of different films in Italy. And in 1957, she came to England to appear in a British war film produced by Cubby Broccoli's Warwick Films called No Time to Die, hey. um, directed by Terence Young. Um, and then in 1959, she went to Hollywood under contract to star in a TV series called Five Fingers with David Hedison, another Bond link there. But that show was cancelled after three months. And then in 1965... After auditioning for the role of Domino, she landed the role of Fiona Kelly and they changed the name of Fiona Kelly to Volpe uh, to suit her heritage. Um, so that's that's about it for Luciana Paluzzi. She gave up acting in the 1970s um, and she felt that being in Bond meant that she was taken less seriously as an actor when she returned to work in Italy. So uh, that's sort of the legacy for her. But of course, I forgot your ego, Mr Bond. James Bond, who only has to make love to a woman, and she starts to hear heavenly choir singing. She repents it and immediately returns to the side of right and virtue. But not this one. Okay, so V is for Von Schlaff, Countess Lissel Von Schlaff. I like saying Von Schlaff. Yes. <laughs> uh, she is the mistress of Topol. Milos Colombo, mm. played by Topol, who is... Uh, the bad guy in For Your Eyes Only. And she is loosely based on a character from uh, Ian Fleming's Risico short story, which I previously mentioned. So um, the character is called Liesl Baum in that. So it's loose, loose, loose based on that. Um, she is played by actor Cassandra Harris. So yeah, she is basically the, her character needs to extract information from bond so anyway bond's posing as journalists and um they they meet and they share a ride and they go to colombo's property they obviously they make love but then her her accent slips and it reveals that the countess is not actually from austria but is a native of liverpool yes um great twist quite the reveal um (laughs) (laughs) so at the time of filming this Cassandra Harris was married to Pierce Brosnan. So if you go back to the Brosnan episode, we do cover this quite a lot because, you know, this this was integral to the Bond story. Um, but they, they lunched with Cubby during filming a lot of this. Yes. Um, so they got quite sort of pally at this time. And she'd played opposite Brosnan in Remington Steel as well for a few episodes. Right. Throughout the 80s. She was born Sandra Colleen Waits. In 1948, from Australia, born in Sydney, but we we did we did cover her 
in the Brosnan episode. Go back and listen to that. And, and sadly, um, in 1987, she was diagnosed with ovarian cancer. And um, it was actually the it was cancer that had took her own mother's life as well. Um, for four ah. years, she had was was dealing with it until she died in December 1991. She was 43. And then, sadly as well, her daughter, Charlotte, also died from ovarian ca- cancer in June 2013, age 42. Ah, Just absolute tragedy. Um, mm. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's pretty... Her being in this film and being married to Pierce Brosnan is integral to him eventually becoming Bond. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's really important in in who who we got to play Bond after Dalton. I mean, it was going to be earlier than that. It was going to be nineteen eighty seven, but we did eventually get Brosnan. But it was because he was friends and sort of chummy with Cubby that that all all worked out, and we got Brosnan as Bond. Exactly, you've got to be in it to win it, haven't you? And being yeah. put in front of him at that stage in his career was sort of pivotal, absolutely pivotal. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Well, let's wrap things up there then. I mean, a couple of honourable mentions to uh, of a couple of things that we didn't include in more detail, but Universal Studios, which is the studio which distributed um, No Time to Die in a one-off deal. Um, not much to say about them. We covered that deal on our No Time to Die episode. We've had enough studios talk. No more. We've had enough studios <laughs> talk this uh, this week. Um, and I just wanted to give an honourable mention to the Vulcan, the, the airplane in Thunderball. Um which um, is an integral part of that movie in Thunderball. And growing up as a child in Lincolnshire, the Vulcan was a plane I was obsessed with because we used to see them flying a lot. Mm. Um, uh, And so I just wanted to mention it here. But um, yeah, there's two Vulcans were used in Thunderball. One was used for ground sequences, one was used for flying sequences. uh, And both were scrapped not long after being used in Thunderball. Um, So uh, yeah, I don't know, they, they don't they don't exist anymore. But one, the model version that was sunk under the sea in the Bahamas apparently does exist still under the water. It's very much a framework um, aeroplane there. But yeah, I remember as a child, some, a, fr- a friend's family um, or a friend's dad knew someone at RAF Waddington and they allowed us on, on site to go inside a Vulcan and we went and climbed inside it and it was an absolutely wow. mind-blown experience. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, little honourable mention there. So um Yes, well, that wraps things up for this week's James Bond A to Z podcast. Um, if people want to email the show, you can get us on the podcast at jamesbondatoz.co.uk. And if people want to find us on social media, Brendan? At jamesbondatoz on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. Yeah, so our next episode will be on the letter W. So there's a, a, a bumper episode to come there. Then we've got a couple more to come. Um, one about Michael G. Wilson. Then we've got X, Y, and Z. And then we've got You Only Live Twice. And that will, that will wrap things up. But um, I just wanted to say, if you do want to um, ask us anything or send us any messages for our final episode, then please do. We'd love to hear what you have to say about the series that we've done. Um, and you can email the show on podcast at jamesbond a to z.co.uk anytime uh, with anything you want to say anything you want to include if you want it's an audio clip you want to send us then send us that as well uh, but yeah we'd love to hear that for our, our final episodes which are coming up soon um, so on that note Brendan thank you it just remains for me to say James Bond A to Z podcast will return next week ciao the James Bond A to Z podcast is hosted and produced by Tom Butler and Brendan Duffy with music by Tom Ingemels and artwork by Helen Dolly. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please like and subscribe 
and leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you listen. Drinking the wine makes me feel quite sophisticated, a bit like, you know, James Bond ordering a martini. I'd like a... like a martini shaken. Not stout. I want it now. Don't make me wait. I'll have a vodka martini shaken but not stirred. I'll have a vodka martini shaken not stirred. I'll have a vodka. I'll have a vodka. You look very worried. Uh, so do you. No. You should take a look at your face. I'll have a vodka martini shaken not stirred. You look like you're recovering from a stroke and learning how to get mobility again. I'd, uh, I'd like a vodka martini shaken but not stirred. I can feel my legs. It's a miracle. I'd like a vodka martini shaken but not stirred. I'd like a vodka martini shaken Save big on brunch for mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson natural boneless chicken breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.